Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project podcast with me, Matt Williams. Today I'm speaking to Emily Mott. www.emilymott.com is where you can find more information about her. And she's a photographer and environmental activist. She was educated at the Putney School, Dartmouth College and Art Centre College of Design. Uh, In New York City she worked as a pastry chef and book reviewer before turning to photography. Her clients have included Rolling Stone magazine, The New Yorker, The Telegraph, Waitrose, Ikea, British Airways and many others. And in 2013, Complex.com named her as one of the 25 best travel photographers in the world. She does pro bono photography work for Friends Without Borders, Portsmouth Bengali Community Association and the Rural Refugee Network, among others. She lives on a farm in West Sussex with her husband, two children, eight chickens, and a cat. And Emily has also been an instrumental figure in the local activist movement to save Markwell's wood from fossil fuel exploration. In this conversation, we cover her photography work and her approach to documenting beautiful landscapes and environmental destruction, including in Borneo. We also go into some of the detail about the risks that fracking poses to our countryside and environment the planning regulations that apply to it, and the tactics that Emily and her fellow activists have used in their local campaign. And it's a subject that I'm really interested in, having worked on fracking policy myself for a few years as well. If you can hear some cute noises in the background, by the way, that's my baby nephew. Uh, As usual, the Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of the people saving nature. You can find us online at wildvoicesproject.org and at Wild Voices Proj on Twitter. And you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, and it would be great if you could rate us or leave a review. Right, I think without any further ado, let's dive into this latest episode of the Wild Voices Project podcast. podcast and thanks very much for joining me um i'm gonna start where i where i usually start which is by asking um how do you build wildlife the outdoors nature into your day or your week yeah it's funny that you should ask about the wildlife because that is why we all got involved in the first place we wanted to save um to restore this um ancient woodland that was Um, where all the trees were cut down and it was covered up to make way for the fracking site. Um, And since then, we've done a lot of work on biodiversity and and researched the bat population. And we've been looking at, we have 13 different kinds of bats in this area, which is incredible, including the Beckstein bat, which is very rare indeed. Um, We also got the RSBP on board some some local members who have been doing surveys and we have some amazing sightings of um, yellowhammers and we've got um, all sorts of, there's a list of about 12 different birds that are on the red list. So we've been looking at that. We haven't had a lot of time to look into the insects, but as we know, we have such a decrease in the insect life now. It's just all of these things have been flagged up as, as really important and yet another reason to um, restore the site and create create those links. That, that It's like a calico, not a calico, it's like a patchwork quilt and we're missing important and essential parts of the patchwork quilt so that our wildlife just does, they, they're not getting the quarters they need, so... Yeah, mm-hmm. I really I want to turn to the topic of fracking in a bit, but before doing that, I want to um, I want to look backwards a little bit into into the things that you've done done in the past, and I wanted to start by asking if you can remember where your interest in the outdoors and the or the environment came from in the first place. Oh well, long ago, just wandering in the woods. I used to have a little place I'd go 
to collect violets when I was tiny and I used to make little bouquets, little little um, bouquets and drop them on people's doorsteps. <laughs> so I was always interested in the wildlife and my family would go for lots of walks and I was a cross-country skier. So it was not just through, through all the seasons where I grew up, it was always important to me. Um, yeah, and then every summer I spend a month on a lake on a little island up in Quebec. So we have, again, different different wildlife and different appreciation of under the water, on the shoreline, in the woodlands. Yeah, berry collecting. We go, we go, um, we do a lot of foraging around here, and we look for mushrooms and berries and and head not just the hedgerows, but into the woods. So that's always been important. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask as well about um, some of the other things that you've done before you've got involved in environmental activism, put that in quotes. Um, okay. So I know that you went to uh, design school in Pasadena and then one of your first kind of seminal or key photography trips was one that you took to Australia. I was wondering if you might just be able to say a little bit more about that. Uh, yeah, that was during my studies and I went to assist a photographer in the Northern Territories. I lived with an Aboriginal family on the beach for a month and um, we learned about the old ways and continued ways. It's a struggle for them and the family I live with. They constantly, um, the new and the old, but we had, we did a lot of fishing every day. We went out and fished for lunch and fished for dinner. And we did, again, we did foraging and, and um, a lot of observation of the sea because it was a real sea existence. Um, just sitting on the beach watching the sea life and the fish it was incredible. Um, that was the start. That was when I was just assisting. I did some portraiture, but... Um, and then I got into some work. I went to Borneo with the Telegraph magazine and National and um, Condé Nast Traveler. We did a story on deforestation in the Borneo in the jungle, and um, we had an incredible trek through um, high canopy rainforest. And then one day it just ended. There was just nothing and for as far as you could see they were the trees were raised for the palm oil and it was just the most incredible and stark um and shocking experience in my life was to go from the density of the rainforest and everything that was happening and everything we could hear and the birds and the monkeys and then just the next minute nothing for it was just horrific um, and that was a real lesson to me. Mm. I started started getting involved, but not still took a while because I had to be. I was kind of building up my career and and working a lot. Yeah, I um I've actually lived in lived in Borneo myself for a year or so. Um, oh. So it's a part of the world that I know reasonably well, um, and it was a topic that I wanted to wanted to touch on. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about the trip that you took there, actually. So. Um, First of all, are there any particularly memorable or special encounters with wildlife there that stand out to you? Uh, yeah, we had some really great encounters with um, leeches. <laughs> <laughs> I was lucky. I was in a part of the forest that was too too acidic for there to be leeches. There were plenty yeah, of mosquitoes, but yeah. yeah. It's incredible the way they love... <laughs> They just wait for you on the trail and then latch on and suck your blood. Now, um, we had a, yeah, a kind of a sad experience with with one of the monkeys. And it was because we were traveling with um, indigenous people and it was their right to hunt. And I'm trying to think, I can't remember the name of the monkey that they killed, but at the end of our trip, they did go hunting and they brought back a monkey on their back 
on the backpack and and one of them was a nursing mother and I, I was really upset by that but then it's their right so it's similar with the aboriginal groups there was you know hunting for turtles sea turtles and and it's we have a a different perspective obviously the west going out and trying to conserve when there's still people who have always been there who have these ancient rights and their way of life, but their way of life is being affected in a horrible way as well. So we have to think about that. Um, but yeah, the bird life and the butterflies were amazing, and the and just the trees. And I'm not I'm not um, a naturalist at all, and I have a bad time remembering the name of things. So, but um, it certainly was an incredible experience. We also did a story, a food story, and they went boar hunting and also collecting mushrooms and snails and um, and eating the bamboo from the forest so that was fascinating yeah so I, I'm interested in in what you were trying to convey with your photography and obviously for some of these you're on assignment for publications so maybe you had a brief from them but I've read that you I've read you say you said or you wrote that you would rather focus your lens on unspoilt beauty than on environmental destruction. And I wondered if you could say a little bit more about why that is. I think I wrote that in that I, it's too bad that we have to be focusing. I didn't mean to say that I didn't want to turn my lens towards that, that what, that's what's been destroyed. But in fact, of course, I'd rather take pictures of beautiful landscapes, but only that's just theoretically speaking. Mm. I'm spending my time, well, also had to do with the fact that I'm sent on some very, to some expensive resorts, and I don't really want to photograph expensive resorts. I'd rather be <laughs> photographing environmental things, but obviously there's not a lot of money in that, and there isn't even a lot of money in the expensive resorts these days, but it's um, it it is what keeps the magazines going as the advertisers, and then they send you on a to a country, and obviously they, they have to put you up, so you take pictures of the hotels. So, so yes, I'd rather be in the wilds than in some Italian beach resort. Um and uh. What do I want to ask? I suppose um, the question that I'm trying to formulate in my head, because it's not one that I've written down in front of me, is, um, you know, you went to northern Australia and you went to Borneo. Um, presumably, um, as for myself, you know, going to countries like that and environments like that, um, which are extreme or at least very different compared to the environment that I grew up in, um, took a bit of adjustment and it took me time to adjust because I, I do wildlife photography as well. Um, yeah. It took me time to adjust my photography skills. I suppose was, was there a process of transition or adjustment for you in going to, going to these places and did your photography skills adapt and evolve through those, through those trips? Um, yeah, I wouldn't, I'm not a wildlife photographer. That's a very specific Skill and it takes a long time and a lot of waiting, doesn't it? Um, yep. I have, uh, yeah, I often have five days to shoot and 25 different, completely different images from a, from a portraiture to a scene to, so it's, it's a lot more specific and commercial, I say com not commercial when it's a story story, but yeah, my trip to Borneo was three different stories. Put packed into two weeks so um, we didn't have unfortunately I, I did a story on the clouded leopard and it was more on the research team that was looking into this and we used some night um, imagery that was taken by um, like a what do you call that a CCT like CCT. Infra infrared cameras infrared or, yeah. cameras yeah there was no way that we could because they had been waiting for months and they had some amazing um, imagery of the clouded leopard but so so that's one example where that so we we use their image because I couldn't spend days and days and nights and nights waiting for the clouded leopard and that and that's not my skill so the my skills would be more portraiture and then the environment so an environmental portraiture 
and um, landscape. Yeah. So, so yeah, every single time I go on a job, there's something I learn, you know, going into the rainforest, you have to learn how to keep your equipment in a, in good order. And, (laughs) and there's a lot of issues with ants at that point it was film and the ants were getting into my, my Polaroid. And, um, yeah, that was the, the challenge of nature and the equipment more than honing the skills. But yeah, every single, every single shoot, I learned something new and learning not to take pictures. You know, we don't have to take pictures of everything, but holding it in our head and, and learning how to just hold back a bit, I think. I completely agree with that. I would be a much better photographer if I took fewer photos, I think, because the temptation is always just to push the trigger button and actually it's better to slow down, think and com- mm. compose something more carefully than take, you know, five rattle off five or ten shots that aren't quite as good as what you could have thought up if you just stopped for a moment. Um, yeah. And the rainforest, that- the rainforest for me as well took a bit of adjusting to getting used to the low light conditions and figuring out what what iso setting to have it on and how to compensate for that that sort of thing took a little bit of getting used to too yeah it's very dark but i had a tripod and um, again it was quite large medium format negative film i used so quite quite a different to today's 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 cameras (laughs) to digital but you still get a, a different quality also, nature sometimes throws in um, surprises. So we were trying to, I went with a writer who had been there decades before to climb the first, to climb this mountain. And by, when we got to the top, there was just clouds and we couldn't get the shot. So that was that was humbling. It's always, always humbled by, by either the weather or a creature, an incredible creature that just comes for a shot for a quick second and then runs away, and and so so it's it we can't we can't always, as we said as I said earlier, we just can't always rely on being able to capture the moment. Were there any just picking up on that thread of, of kind of random wild card events being thrown into the mix? Were there any? maybe it was in Borneo or maybe it's elsewhere, were there any mistakes or apparent failures that actually turned out to be really useful learning points or taught you, taught you useful lessons? Um, gosh. Um, I'm sure there are so many mistakes that I make um, and, and it's all the learning process. I can't think of any major horrendous mistake other than losing negatives every once in a while or or, or um, setting my camera. That I mean, that has happened where I have the wrong setting and I, I go through the shoot and then I realize once that I didn't get one shot because there actually wasn't a card in the camera, but then that was just, that was a major flaw on my behalf. Yeah. Um, no, I haven't had any. I haven't so far. I've been very lucky. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, and looking through looking through your website, I noticed that um, it certainly felt to me anyway that your images have a lot of light in them and a lot of texture to them. I was wondering if there's a particular style that you feel that you have, and also who some of your f- uh, photographic or artistic influences might be in your approach to capturing images. Um, oh, there's such a list of amazing photographers that come before or exist now. There's just, and there's so much imagery, isn't there, out there? Mm. But, but people, I really, I really started out doing portraiture. So Irving Penn was one person I really loved. And, and then looking at photographers like Sebastian Salgado, but I, I, I wouldn't say I'm, his work is very different, obviously, and and I haven't I haven't been able to work as much. I gave up photography for for activism over the last few years, so I'm not given up, but I just put it aside because there were all these issues that came up. I 
I did a story for the Telegraph magazine in Dunkirk on a, on a refugee camp, um, and that got me involved with the refugee crisis in 2016. So I spent a lot of that year just um, volunteering and trying to make a difference um, in that world. And then, and then fracking came nearby and I started getting involved with that. So, so, but I'm thinking of ways where I can blend the activism with my work and try to make a bigger impact. Um, but again, there's just so many photographers. Um, of course, when you ask me, I'm trying a blank. But, <laughs> well, I, the, re the reason that I ask is because I know a lot of my friends and my peers, and I think at least a few of the people who listen to this podcast are probably, like myself, either accomplished, well, I'm, I'm not calling myself accomplished, they're accomplished or aspiring environmental or wildlife photographers, and are probably on the lookout for names of, you know, other inspiring photographers or artists who they can go and look at. So I'm just interested in your in your recommendations. And Sebastian Salgado is one who who I've looked at in the past. He does a fantastic TED talk um, about some of the photos he's taken over the course of his career, which I watched a couple of years ago. That that's a particularly useful lecture. Oh, I'll have to check that out. I've seen. Have you seen his latest the film about him? No, I haven't. Mm. Excellent. What's it called, and what does it sort of? Is it sort of a kind of biopic type film? Um, no, Sebastian. There's an amazing film called The Salt of the Earth about um, Salgado, and I really recommend that you check it out. Okay, great, thank you. Um, uh, okay, um, I can move. I can probably move on. Um, uh, oh yes, I wanted to ask that briefly. Um, I noticed that alongside, I, I didn't know you'd done cross-country skiing, but alongside photography, you'd been a book reviewer and also a pastry chef. And I was wondering <laughs> if there were any important skills that you felt that you developed through those trades that you've you've carried across into either your photography or your environmental activism. Oh, yeah, definitely. Cake at the gate. <laughs> what what does have, that mean? <laughs> we have a... Um, Broadford Bridge campaign group uh, has a cake at the gate meeting in front of the, the fracking site once a week mm. they met. And that would be a good place to use my skills. Although I haven't brought cake to the gate yet, but I was planning on doing that. Um, so everyone likes a cake and that's been really good for campaigning and meeting with people. And I use those skills, but um, yeah, I, that's, it's, pastry chef might have been a little bit um, exaggerating it. I used to make cakes and brownies and things for cafes in New York City. So so when Starbucks started um, their business, I begged for them, but it that was they had five cafes in New York City. I think that's legitimate though. Is there is there anything uh, yeah. I kind of I kind of imagine that being quite a high pressured time pressured um, line of work is there anything that you've taken from being under being under that pressure that's been useful in photography assignments or in, in environmental activism um i think just the whole probably more from being on the crew team and pastries my my baking was not high pressure i loved it and it was pretty low-key at that point so i mean starbucks wasn't wasn't known and it wasn't public so at that point it was very it was just kind of undercover co coffee shops in New York um, so that wasn't high pressure at all um, but yeah a lot of work that I've done reviewing books that also I really enjoyed it I was really into poetry when I got out of university and I'd studied English literature so um, that was a joy um, I wouldn't say it was high pressure either. So I've been really lucky. I think my photography work and, and studying was high pressure. We had, I went to a very commercial art school. We had, and it was at the very end of, of, um, film. So we, but we still carried on the old school. So we, we learned black and white and color development and printing, um, 
and we had extremely precise and painstaking assignments that were very, very technical. And we worked about 15 hours a day for two years straight. It was it was hard work and hardcore. So that was that was good training. It was like being in the I don't know. It was it was um, definitely got me prepared for for activism. Also, that was for working up over here with Mark Leswood. That was about 10 to 15 hours a day. Um, so yeah, I guess it's just being passionate about something. It's more, it's not, it's, that's the core of it. If you have a passion and you have a goal and, and you can see um, that that might be achieved with hard work, then there's really no alternative. You just have to get the job done. So, yeah. Mm, okay. Um, I'm very lucky in that my, my sister-in-law had a short spell working at the French Laundry in New York as a pastry chef. Oh, that, so. that, that's hardcore and that's high pressure. <laughs> yeah. So She wasn't making brownies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so wh whenever she has baked um, over, the, over the years since, uh, since she and my brother got together, it's always been, it's always been a delight. <laughs> yeah, that's lucky. Yeah. Um, so I want to move on to Mark Wells' word and to your environmental activism next. And I'm quite excited to dig into the topic of fracking because I've spent the last uh, four, maybe five years or so working on, um, four years, yeah, working on fracking policy. Um, so it's a topic that I'm reasonably familiar with, but from the point of view of the legislation and the government regulation, and actually, I have very little experience of the of the extremely important activism that's going on on the ground um, against both new conventional and unconventional oil and gas exploration. So I'm really interested to hear your story about what you've been doing, how you've got involved, what what some of the challenges that you faced are, and to to have a bit of a conversation about about that. What kind of policy have you been working on? So I worked on things like um, the, well, a couple of things. So when the Infrastructure Act went through Parliament in 2015, I was part of a group of NGOs that were calling for, this gets quite technical, but basically we were calling for designated sites, so AOMBs, national parks, um, world heritage sites, to be ruled out from fracking. And crucially, the government was leaving triple SIs, sites of special scientific interest, off that list of sites that would be protected. And we mm -hmm. lobbied quite hard for them to include triple SIs on that list. No, and they, they eventually did. And they did that through the new pedal licenses that were awarded in the 14th round of licensing in 2016. And when they gave out those licenses, they included a condition in each license that said you can't put a well at the surface within these designated sites and that list of sites was the full list that we had been asking for for a couple of years and I was really kind of leading that work with a group of with a group of NGOs um, that were calling for those changes so I've been quite involved in the techie policy side of things um, mm -hmm. not not at all in the on the ground activism stuff interesting yeah I haven't really been yeah been doing both researching policy and regulation in, in America, in the U.S., mm. and uh, comparing to here and doing a lot of work with regulations in the U.K., um, what we found in the Southeast, what we're struggling against is this wrongly defined definition of fracking as per the Infrastructure Act, um, which leaves a huge amount, 89% or so, of the onshore wells in the U.K. would be not classified as fracking but will be involving very similar aspects of the negative aspects of fracking. And is this to so, do with the the definition of fracking being to do with the volume of water that's used? Yeah. In a, yes, of course. Uh, yes, in the UK what is it 10 cubic 10,000 cubic it's 10, meters. 10,000 cubic meters over the course of the well or 1,000 cubic meters per day. Yeah, so in the U.S., for example, i, I got to get my stats up because I'm forgetting the exact number, but I believe in New York State, where I'm from, where fracking is banned, fracking is defined as 
300,000 gallons of water, right? Yeah. The, the same in the UK with that under that would be two and a half million or so. So we have the threshold is so much lower. It's eight times lower something than the definition in the UK. And we talk about gold standard regulation in the UK. It's, it's just unbelievable. So we've, we're, we're campaigning against the def, the, this flawed definition of fracking. And we need, we're trying to get um, the technique that's being used in the southeast is acidization, which is coming under radar. There are just uh, vast loopholes at the moment. So it's not, you know, SSSIs, national parks, whatever, any protected uh, landscapes are not protected from acidizing under this definition. So we're, we're, we're trying to get some attention paid towards the process of acidizing it's also being used. People, companies are coming in saying this is non-fracking. This is not fracking, and and so creating real problems in terms of how the planning departments are dealing with these applications because they all are they they everything is completely skewed. So cumulative impact of a development, um, infrastructure, um, preparedness, carrying of toxic waste um it's all going to be under threat our our environment and our communities are not being um protected at the moment in terms of what regulations are in place so we should we should probably have a conversation after the recording about the definition stuff because i've done a little quite a bit of digging into into the technicalities of that and i can probably share some useful useful yeah. info from my conversations with government departments but just to maybe maybe we should just rewind slightly and back up for people who may not even be that familiar with what fracking is so could, okay. could you do a little bit of from your point of view what is fracking what are the risks of it and how have those played out locally to you so we have because of this flawed definition of fr what is fracking. So are you talking about the Infrastructure Act definition of fracking? No, sorry. I mean, I sorry, suppose... Sorry, I've been, I've been trained to be so um, <laughs> careful about this because then industry, of course, says it's not fracking. So what is what? how I define fracking, I'm just going to ignore the Infrastructure Act because it's bogus. Um, <laughs> yeah. So fracking would be using pressure and or chemicals, pressure to break the rock or chemicals to dissolve the rock depending on the rock formation and the target formation and using pressure, water, chemicals, what have you, gas to, to release the oil or gas that's trapped underground. And what we're seeing is in across England, all the easy oil's gone or soon to be gone. And what the target formations that they're looking at are in the Weald, the Wealden area, which is like a lozenger-shaped formation across the, the southeast from Winchester to, um, well, it's, it's pretty much the Weald, covers the Weald. So, and then up north, so Lancashire area and across to Yorkshire. So we're having, um, we're having, sorry, I'm getting lost now. We're, we're talking about fracking and what I believe it to be. Yeah, and so, um, so I, th I think you've kind of captured it, which is that it's using this technique of high pressure mixes of water, sand, chemicals to access oil and gas reserves. And we've, as you say, we've tapped into all the easy to access stuff, but this new technology allows us to get hold of huge new because it because it opens up access to huge new potential resources. Well, huge is is disputable mm -hmm. um, of of oil and gas, um, and that's that's what the the industry at least would claim is the basis for a brand new kind of section of the fossil fuel industry in. In the UK, or at least in England, mm -hmm. at the moment, right, and that poses threats to our climate and to our natural environment. 
Yeah, I think I think the main thing to to realize is because technology is changing, it's evolving, it's in a continuum. It's 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 and regulations just can't keep a pace. The the thing to realize, so when you say pressure, some sometimes there won't be pressure. Sometimes it'll just be mass amount of chemicals, and they're getting um, they're able to do it without very much water even. But but um, but yes, it's. A big problem, and it's localized production. So I think that's the main thing. If you look at what's happened to the United States, where fracking has gone on for a long time, and through the Halliburton loophole, Dick Cheney and his gang all got it excluded from the Clean Air and Clean Water Act. So they they facilitated that, just as they're doing now, just as Trump's environment group is doing in the U.S., Theresa May's environment group, or not environment, but government policy is making way for it to happen here. And and I think it's really important to understand that the people do not want this to happen. There's no social um, license. And once they realize it's localized production, that that oil is tight in the rock and that once it's taken they'll move on and this is going to industrialize the landscape both in the north and the south and our our roads can't handle that our communities aren't going to want it it just it just seems insane i i I just i can't understand the reason for it um in the name of of um national security I, i i just and i think a lot of the Tory party under if people I've spoken to in the southeast at least they don't want it I don't think they realize I don't think they understand it and I don't think they really think it's going to happen so either there's some kind of upfront Ponzi scheme going on with investments and enabling corporations to invest in the UK when we're in a really bad financial situation and then with no expectations of it actually being carried through. I don't I don't quite understand how they think it's actually going to happen because we have not one waste facility in the southeast that can handle um, fracking waste. Yeah, the wastewater that comes back from underground is Yeah, that's often, a major that's a major problem is how are they going to deal with that? Yeah, often contaminated with radioactive elements or mm-hmm. uh, he- heavy metals and other things that are really hard to treat by conventional water treatment facilities. They, so in your words, could you say a little bit about what, what for you the threats of fracking are to to wildlife and maybe you can put that in your local context? Um, well, what we discovered here is that we have an incredibly vulnerable water table. Um, we're in a source protection zone that um, in the chalk, which really needs to be um, protected. In fact, they shouldn't be drilling around here. And I think we're, we flagged up some issues that they're looking into. And, and actually, we won at Mark Wills Wood, right? So they, they've withdrawn their application. And right now, the South Downs National Park is... is um, enforcing restoration of the site so so but that's we have so much to protect where we are but across the wheel there are multiple sites at in that are threatened right now and the wildlife the emissions the flaring um number one that's going to be a big problem just destroying the woodlands as we know the woodlands are right now an incredibly important source um, and they're 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 in threat um, so in all the all the wildlife that's in the woodlands that if we restored all the sites that are in existing right now with woodlands that would be a great boon for our biodiversity um, so we've got then we've got the traffic and all the emissions from the traffic and then we have the, if, for example, there were accidents or spillages, which there always are, that creates um, all sorts of problems, potential problems. And not to mention 
the you know the increase of fossil fuels in the world and the and the emissions of the future oil and gas that's going out into the atmosphere. So we've got lots of knock-on effects that we might not even see in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. So destruction of habitat, um, destruction or health impacts. I mean, that's one one big issue for me is the unknown health impacts of acidizing and fracking. Um, we're just starting to get lots of studies coming back from the U.S., and it's not looking good as far as health impacts. So, yeah, and, and protecting our water, which is not only the source of life for invertebrates, but us, humans, and all sorts of animals. So, and, and, and what goes into the sea. So we're, we're connected, obviously, to the, the, the harbors. And, um, and so we just notice how much we're all connected and what happens here will have knock-on effect in China and vice versa, and we, we, all, we just have to be so much more vigilant. And what have been the kind of, what's been the story of the campaign at Mark Wells Wood and what have been the key moments along, along that journey um, and where are things today with that as well? Um, today we have that 1.5 hectare um, area of woodland that's covered in tarmac and there's a chain link fence around and there's a hole in the ground that goes to the greater Ule, um thousands of meters down and the landowners have denied access to the oil company so they haven't signed the lease so that's that's kind of that's it for them i think also the south downs park are in the process they've they actually put a breach of condition notice on UK oil and gas because they were told to restore the site by 2016, but instead they put in another application. So we went through that whole process last year. Uh, there was widespread opposition. We had over 2,000 residents opposing and uh, most of the statutory consultees. So the environmental agency, which is relatively unheard of, um, objected and as did the highways department and so did the water company so um, it wasn't looking like it was going to get through but they tried and they they did they did some exploration at the site um, five years ago so they were trying they tried to write to our MP and tell them how much oil they were going to get out of the ground and this company and all the companies down here are just penny share companies that they don't aren't even really that interested in how much oil is in there. They're just trying to drive up profit, drive up share, uh, share prices, um, and it's really uh, definitely profit before people. Mm. Um, and you've already referred to it a little bit, but um, beyond beyond that site. Whilst the fracking industry has been slow to take off, there are nonetheless new proposals and applications springing up in the southeast of England and also in the northwest of England. So there's still nonetheless a, a threat at the moment, isn't there? There's a real threat. And the government has just announced, you know, they had a consultation that recently closed and pretty much within days they announced... Um, <laughs> it's almost as if the consultations aren't even being being um, abided by. They're not. They're not going through them. They, they. What. What this government would like to do is to make sites like Markwell's Wood exploration permitted development, just like a granny annex or garden shed. So. So they're trying different ways because they know that the people are opposed and the amazing. Um, campaigning going on in Lancashire has shown that that they're not going to they're just not going to be walked over so they have to think of other ways to bypass really democracy so to change policy to change definitions to create arbitrary definition I find that so sinister and 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 now what we're seeing is our site and our campaigners 
across the southeast are in the middle of an injunction put forward by UK Oil and Gas. And when we were served the injunction a few months ago in March, they said it was to the injunction was against forms of legal and illegal activity. So, so um, that included watching and besetting. That included taking photographs. That included um, anything that was going to interfere with their financial gain. So we're seeing injunctions by Ineos, which is a major corporation in this country, and we're seeing injunctions by UK Oil and Gas, which is, again, small fry, but then supported by larger industry. So we're seeing injunctions, and we're seeing government or the, the legal system approving the injunctions when they should actually, when a lot of these lawful, un, when unlawful activities should be taken forward by the police and our courts. Um, so that's, that's, that's a major problem right now. And we're seeing applications coming forward for so-called non-fracking and exploration is being permitted without proper regulations in place. Yeah, and as you've referred to, the government has, with offshore, uh, sorry, with onshore wind, they've given a lot more power to local communities to object. So with a clean form of energy, they've put the power in the hands of local communities. With fracking, they've taken the power increasingly out of the hands of local communities. And I think they're currently consulting on, or they've just consulted on, making fracking projects what are called nationally significant infrastructure projects, which would mean mm -hmm. that they would be... Um, well, I'm not, I'm not entirely 100% up to speed on the technicalities, but it would give national government a lot more power to, to greenlight them and would take even more of the power out of, out of local communities. Um, yeah. yeah, out of the planning, it would be straight to the Secretary of State. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, though, I think over the past few years, the anti-fracking movement in, in the UK has been incredible and um has risen up against this this new and harmful technology that could be could cause damage in so many ways as you've said to our climate to our wildlife to our to our health i was wondering if despite all the threats there's it gives you hope in a sense to see to see and to have been part of this movement that's come about um certainly i've I've learned a tremendous amount and I'm heartened by all the people who are joined together to fight this. Um, what I, I'm dismayed by our government, extremely, extremely disappointed. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's I'm definitely, you can see the power of the people and how that can, they cannot be walked over. You can see how communities like ours get together and if you spend a lot of time and and um, spread the word and when people really know and have the knowledge and they understand what's going on then then I think that's really information will will make its way to the people and they'll they'll know that this isn't what they want and I think the people will prevail I do have positive feeling about that but we do need um, we need more people to be to, to look up and put their head above the parapet because that's it's just not really the English way it's much it's it's hard for a lot of people around here for example in the south I think they don't want to speak out it's not normal to speak out about your government and speak up and be heard and I think we've seen we're seeing it more and more now with the power of the selfies and and the kid those kids in America and and people are starting to, to, to have more confidence to, to have their opinion heard. And I think slowly we will hear, we will hear more and more, but it just, it takes a really big effort. And I think there's no room for complacency and no time to wait. So hopefully little by little we'll spread the word and, and the interest and, and, and really not to make people cynical, but they really need to, I think, They've realized here because we've been showing, showing up industry and showing up government policy, and 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 hopefully they'll they're gonna realize 
that um, it's not quite so straightforward. And what role do you see yourself playing going forward? Is that still in the anti-fracking fight? Is there a new challenge on the horizon for you? Is it the same role that you've played to date? Or do you want to do, do something different? Do you want to perhaps, as you said earlier, bring your photography skills to bear on these causes? What's, um, what's next? Yeah, I've got a research grant proposal going forward, looking into the regulatory system in the UK right now and the so-called non-fracking um, applications that are going on. Until 2013, there was absolutely no permitting for onshore oil and gas um, by the Environment Agency. That means that there was no data collected and fracking was going on on a small scale, so-called small scale fracking. Um, but there was, we just don't have the data. So there's a lot of research that needs to be done. So I'm, I'm interested in going into research um, I've secured half of my grants, so I'm just looking for grant funding for the other half um, from different sources. And then also, yeah, I have some photo projects that I want to work on having to do with the injunction and the campaigners, but not just in the UK, but kind of looking at some worldwide projects. Cool. Okay. Um, well, I wish you all the best of luck with that. Um, I, th I think that's a nice place to wrap up. Is there anything else that you wanted to bring up or anything that I haven't asked about that you're expecting before we finish? Um, just that there are so many campaign groups. We And across the wheel, we have the Wheeled Action Group, which I'm a member of and I continue to campaign for. And if anyone wants to get in touch, they are welcome to. Can you provide um, my contact details or something so that people are interested they can find their local campaign group because they 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 are out there yeah absolutely sorry that is something that i usually ask and i neglect to do which is what would you like to ask people to do anything so i can put your contact details in the notes accompanying the episode um yeah for sure great okay emily thank you so much that was such an enjoyable conversation and hey we went for basically an hour oh my goodness <laughs> thanks matt thank you so much I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org on Twitter at wildvoicesproj or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much and until next time.